You are listening to the Overflow Podcast, a ministry of First Denton. For more information on Overflow, please visit overflowdenton.org. What you're thinking as we're singing that, um, it's been one of those weeks for me where I hear those words and I'm thinking, okay, from the inside out, my heart cries out. Like, I want my heart to cry out. Like, I want my heart... To, to want to cry out Jesus and to be, be focused on Jesus and to be centered on Jesus at all times, but it's been one of those weeks where it's just been hard. There's, there's so much going on in my life, um, and, and I know that there's so much going on in your lives, and there's so many distractions, so many things I feel like fogging uh, my eyes from seeing, you know, what I feel like Jesus wants me to see and feeling what I feel like he wants me to feel. And so just singing those words, thinking about, okay, my heart cries out. I'm sitting there questioning, like, I want my heart to cry out, Lord. But like in this moment, I'm not sure it's really crying out. I'm not sure that's really the anthem of my soul, the anthem of my heart. Is anybody else in here with me on that? Like, that's hard. It's so hard. But then hearing the words, and I can't remember exactly what it said, but like, everlasting, your light will shine. I hear that. What an incredible anthem for us to sing in faith. What an incredible promise of scripture for us to hold on to, that even when our hearts are not crying out and and singing the praise that it should and feeling what it should and seeing what it should, everlasting, that light continues to shine. The work of Jesus continues to, to hold. And praise God that as a believer in Christ, my standing isn't based on how I feel. My standing isn't based on my performance. What a convicting thing for him to do. Have us look at our hands and think about what our hands have done this week. My standing isn't based on what my hands have done this week. My standing is based on who Jesus is and what he's done, what he's accomplished. It's not my performance, it's his performance. And and I want to share that with you tonight because that's where my heart's at as I'm getting ready to open up the word and teach. (laughs) I mean, it's, it's been a struggle and the struggle is real. But... But Jesus is way more powerful than the, than the struggle. And Jesus' performance is everlasting. And what he did on the cross, that's all we need. That's all I need. In this moment, that's all you need. And, and I pray that, you know, regardless of us, you know, finishing up the series tonight and talking about this, I pray that that's what you see tonight. I pray that that's what you hear. And whether you feel it or not, I pray that that's what you're holding on to. So I'm going to pray for us, um, and then we're going to finish out this series. But I, I, hope that you, I hope that you get that truth. I hope you get that truth. Lord Jesus, as we open up your word tonight, I, I, I desperately need you. I desperately need you in this moment. I pray that you would bring clarity to this text. I pray that you would remove the fog. I know there's so many things going on in our lives and so many distractions and so many Um, just so much sin, so much lack of righteousness. However, there's so much, I don't know if this makes sense, but there's so much righteousness in this room because your righteousness has been given to us based on what you did on the cross. And I just, I pray that we would sit in that freedom tonight. I pray that we would stand in that freedom tonight. I pray that we'd worship in that freedom tonight. I pray that we would study your word in that freedom tonight. And I pray that we'd leave here, those of us who've put our faith in you, walking boldly, walking freely uh, in that freedom tonight, not forgetting that. And so I just, I pray that over these students tonight. I pray that you would just allow them to see so clearly that tonight. 
And I just pray that as we open your word, this, this is probably for many people in this room the first time they're opening your word this week. I pray that it wouldn't be guilt of feeling like this is the first time that they're opening your word this week. I pray that it would be joy as they're reminded of what you've done. And joy as they're reminded of, yeah, their sin and their insecurities and their insufficiencies, but also as they're reminded of how all that you've done has covered that completely. So Lord, I pray that you'd bless tonight as we study your word, and I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. So tonight we are finishing our potatoes, tongues, and tambourine study, and uh, I'm excited about this. I'm excited about this message, um, if nothing else, because you know, when, when, when I, I planned this series months ago, like it was summertime and we're mapping out the year thinking, okay, God, where do you want us to go? And in the moment, it's like you're really amped up about it. You're excited about it. You're pumped about it. And, and I'm still excited about this. Don't get me wrong. But, but I'm also starting to think ahead to next year. I'm thinking ahead to uh, not just next year, but like the upcoming, I'm thinking ahead to next week. I'm excited about next week. I'm excited about this next series we're doing it. Uh, 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 funeral or future. I'm excited about the Ask Anything series coming. Uh, and so I'm, I'm, I'm starting to like, you know, want to be there, but we're still here. In, and so I'm excited we're finishing it. I'm also excited about what we're talking about. Um, last week, we talked pretty in depth about uh, the spiritual gifts of speaking in tongues and prophecy. And, and it's one of these things where if, if last week was your first week or if this week is your first week, it might have been or it might be a little awkward coming in on the middle of the conversation. It happened to me this week. Um, it happened to one of my buddies coming into one of my conversations this week with somebody else where they just came in at a weird time and what they heard, it just sounded absolutely terrible. I don't remember what it was, but I was thinking, oh, that's probably sounded horrible. I don't, I'm sure you've had those moments where you walk in to a conversation halfway through and you're like, did he just say that? Uh, it sound, you know, anyways, but that's kind of one of those moments right now. And so th- if this is your first night with us, you might feel a little bit weird, um, but I hope it will be clear by the end of the night. And, and, and I want to start here tonight with what I'm about to tell you because this is where we began this series. You know, there are five very clear signs that we can look for when we're asking the question, you know, is this moment or is this church or is this person truly being led by God, truly being led by the Holy Spirit? And, and hopefully you've kind of got these signs emblazoned in your mind because we've talked about them a lot. But the five signs, five things to look for. One is, do they have a greater esteem for who Jesus is? You know, if somebody's being truly led by God, they're gonna have a greater and growing esteem for who Jesus is. They're gonna have a great regard for God's word. They're gonna hold this in high regard because they're gonna believe that this is God's word. They're gonna have a greater and a growing conviction of their sin that leads to repentance. In other words, there's gonna be a very clear understanding that, that, that we, that I, that you, that, that they are sinners and that there's a need for <clears throat> repentance, changing from that sin, turning from that sin. There's gonna be a greater and a growing commitment to God's mission, understanding that God is on a mission. And then there's gonna be a greater and growing love for God's church. The family of Jesus, those of us who are united as brothers and sisters in Christ, we're blood brothers and sisters in Christ, but a different kind of blood brothers and sisters in Christ. Like you have your blood brothers and sisters through, you know, mom and dad's blood, DNA, whatever, but we are blood brothers and sisters in Christ through the, through the DNA of Christ. We all share his righteousness. That's now our DNA. So we're blood brothers covered by his blood. But 
we're asking the question tonight, following up from last week, talking about prophecy, talking about speaking in tongues. What should our worship gatherings like this look like? You know, when you talk about speaking in tongues and prophecy, it brings up the question, okay, so what should it look like in here? And, and you know, we're, we're talking specifically about this. It's a controversial issue. And so what I want to ask tonight is, does the Bible have any specific instructions in regard to what our worship gatherings should look like, specifically in light of what we talked about last week, prophecy and speaking in tongues? Now, before we go there, I want to back up for a second and share a little bit of my story. So, so my story, and I've shared it bits and pieces here and there, but it, my senior year in college is when God basically said to me, I'm, I'm going to completely change the direction of your life. Like I was a business marketing major. I was planning on going into business when I graduated. And October of my senior year, that all changed. It's like he said, dude, I, am, I'm, I want you to be full-time ministry. Now that being said, in so many ways, the way that he called me into ministry was maybe even more about him changing my heart towards the church. Because in college, I didn't really have a high regard for God's church. I didn't love God's church. I had a thing against God's church. In college, I went to four different churches. Uh, the first church I went to was uh, First Baptist Church in Arkadelphia, Arkansas. It was a very traditional church. Um, it was one of those churches, in fact, it was like there was this controversy, go- controversy going on at the time. of. So when somebody got up and sang, and at the end, like if people were like, yeah, heck yeah, was it okay to clap? Like people were worried about, is it okay to clap or not? And that's kind of where this church was. Um, and then I, I ended up going to another church. The church um, is called Second Baptist Church. I guess it was the Second Baptist Church to be started in this town. Very creative names. And, and it was the church where all of the kind of cool students from my school went. Um, and, and it was the very, you know, if, if you were not in, then you were not in. You know what I'm saying? Like if you weren't part of that crowd, then you felt awkward going because it was all cliquish and they were super social. And if you didn't have like these super incredible social skills, then you couldn't make it into that church. Then I went to another church called Fellowship. It started while I was there, started by some professors at my school. And, and there were three professors. They, tra- they took turns teaching. This kind of became the trendy church to be at. Um, they had little home groups. Um, they called them koinonia groups or something. I don't know. Anyways, koinonia groups. They, they had home groups out of that. And, and it, was, you know, it was interesting because you had three different teachers. that you know that One would teach one week. One would teach another week. Some of those teachers were definitely better than others. There were some weeks where it's like if you knew this guy was teaching, you just wouldn't go. And then I started my senior year. You're going to this extremely podunk church of about like 30 people. And it was out in the woods. I don't even remember the name of it. It was kind of sketchy going out there, driving out in the woods. Not sure what's going to happen to you. But I started going there because my college pastor, um, who was mentoring me, pouring a lot into me my senior year, was asked to be the interim pastor there in a time of transition. So I started going there. I had all these interesting church experiences. Then the summer between my junior and senior year in college, I interned for a mega church in the Dallas area, one of the largest churches at the time in the country, still is today one of the largest churches in the country. I was a junior high intern. Uh, It was a terrible, not a terrible experience. It just wasn't a great experience, not because of the church, but because of the junior high kids. Uh, We would have about a thousand junior high kids on Sunday mornings, and it was horrifying. Um, But I had all these different church experiences. And, And with all of that, I was so frustrated by the church. And the reason I was so frustrated, and, and I, need, I do need to give this detail just to kind of tie it all in, that, that church that I was interning in, the one thing that did frustrate me about that church was I was, even though I was a junior high pastor, I was forced on Sunday mornings to wear a, a coat and tie, which if you know me now, you have nev- literally never seen me in a coat and tie because I don't really own any that are worth 
you know, look good or in good shape or anything like that. But so there's all these different kinds of churches. And I, and I get out of that experience with all these churches and I was so frustrated by the church. I was frustrated because I saw so many different arguments happening in all these different churches. There were arguments over what should the worship style be like? What should the dress be like? Are we allowed to clap in church or not? Who should be teaching on Sunday morning? There were all these arguments happening inside the church, but nobody seemed to be arguing over or concerned about all of the non-believers all around the outside of the church. Are you following my train of thought here? I was so frustrated because I felt like the structured, formalized version of the church was keeping us from really making any sort of impact in the world around us. So, I didn't want to have much to do with the church. In October, I remember October of my senior year, I'm sitting there like, uh, I, I, was, I was starting, I had helped start this discipleship ministry my senior year, and that's a whole other story. But a lot of that time for me, my senior year, I was spending meeting with different dudes. It was a men's disi- or dudes discipleship ministry. And, and I, I had this one day where I didn't have any meetings scheduled. And so I called some of the guys that I was mentoring and, uh, and, and was like, dude, we got to meet today. Because I was like, I want to meet with some guys. Because that was my passion, was meeting with guys, mentoring guys, helping them understand the truths of God's word. And, and nobody could meet with that, me that day. And I remember sitting in my room, literally one of those little twiddle your thumbs moments. And I was like, well, this day is the worst. I have nothing to do, even though I had like four classes that day, but I wasn't going to them. But I'm sitting there thinking, this is the worst. And it was in that moment, it was in that moment that God spoke into my heart. He doesn't speak audibly to me, at least not yet, you know, but he does speak into my heart. And it was so clear. It was in that moment he was like, dude, I'm calling you to ministry. When God speaks to me, he addresses me as dude. He said, dude, I'm calling you into ministry. This is your passion. And it was like this light bulb went off in my, in my mind, in my heart. And so I'm a business marketing major, senior in college. What, what, you know, what do I do with that? So I went to my college pastor and was like, so what do I do? And, and my first idea was, okay, I'm going to go straight into seminary. I don't know if you know what that is. Not to be confused with cemetery, though sometimes it feels like I am at a cemetery. I was, in, I was like, I'm going to go full route of seminary, you know, get a master's degree um, to train me in how to be you know, a, a, a pastor, an effective pastor. And so I was going to go that route. I started applying to different seminaries. And then my college pastor said in January now of my senior year, he said, dude, I think you should um, consider getting an internship first before going to seminary so you can figure out whether or not, you know, this is really for you. And so I started interviewing in a couple different places. Two, two p- people were interviewing me. One was this job in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And, and I've got, a lot of my family lives up in Colorado. My parents actually move in there next month. Um, <clears throat> thank God, get them out of Dallas. Uh, I, I, they're moving, I'm just kidding, if they ever hear this. I'm kidding, Mom, Dad. Uh, a lot of my family lives up there, and so it made sense, you know, and, and I know a lot of, I love Colorado mountains. I mean, snow, come on, it's awesome. So I'm like pursuing this opportunity, and I go up there, and I interview. They basically offer the job, and I basically accept the job. The entire time all this was happening, though, I had this church in West Texas, the desert in Lubbock, calling me, a church. Church was calling me, and you know how I felt about the church in college. So literally, and I knew nothing about this church, which is a good thing, uh, but I literally, every phone call, I would say, look, thank you for the phone call but I am never going to work for a church, so please don't waste your time in calling me anymore. Now, they kept on calling. I think it's because my college pastor was calling them after I'd hang up with them and say, hey, I'm working on them. Keep calling. (laughs) But I basically accepted the job in Colorado Springs and had turned down this job in Lubbock. And that summer, I had planned to go on this one-month 
trip to West Africa. And so I went to West Africa. There's this mission trip. We're out in the middle of nowhere. I've talked different times about it here. We're out in the middle of nowhere. Like sub-Saharan, you know, the, the country we're in Senegal is like the top third is the Sahara Desert. So it's really stinking hot. Like it, I don't think it ever got below 100 degrees even at night. So like you're sweating like crazy. And I mean, it's a really poor country. There's not a whole lot to do there, but like sit and think. And I remember there's one day we're driving near the Gambia River. So the central part of the country and this is like the one part of the country we're seeing animals everywhere because the Gambia River is like an oasis, so there's, you know, just animals everywhere. And so we're driving, and I'm in the back. I don't know how I ended up being the guy who had to sit in the back of the pickup truck, but I'm sitting in the back of the pickup truck, and there's like this herd of wild hogs, like the ones with tusks, like in, in Lion King, following us. And then there's these baboons kind of crossing the path and following us. At one point, our truck gets stuck in the mud, and they yell at me, and they're like, hey, we need you to get out and push. I'm like, I'm not getting out of this thing and pushing, because I was inside of a cage inside the back of this truck. I'm not getting out of here and pushing. There's like wild hogs, like right there. Uh, we had to get out and push, though. It was a very terrifying moment. I survived, clearly. Um, those wild hogs, they saw how big I was, and when I got, no, I'm just kidding. I was like, please don't hurt me, wild hogs. Bunny trails. So I'm sitting there in the back of the truck, and, and, we're, and we're driving, right? And this was another one of those moments where God just spoke so clearly into my heart. I had planned to take this job in Colorado, and he said to me in my heart, he's like, dude, I want you, when you get back, which would be about the end of June, it's like, I want you, when you get back, to call Lubbock. And when you call Lubbock, I want you to tell them the truth. You are taking this job in Colorado, but tell them that you, you feel like you need to come see Lubbock so that when you're in Colorado, you know you made the right decision. And then ask them to fly you out to Lubbock and then put you in a hotel. And so I was like, I can totally do that. So I, I get home, and, and I do that. I call Lubbock, and I say exactly all of that. I said, hey, can y'all, can y'all pay to fly me out there? Put me in a hotel? Um, I'm ta- and I was very clear, I'm taking this other job. And they said, yeah, we'll fly you out here and put you in the hotel, which at that point I'm thinking, this is not good. So I get out there, and, and as, soon as, I, I, as soon as I land, it was like God just put this peace over me that this is where I was supposed to be. And I was not happy about this. One, I was feeling peace about going and serving on staff at a church. And two, I was leaving the opportunity of the mountains to be in the desert. Any of you who've been West Texas know what I'm talking about. Preach. But it's really interesting. It's really interesting. You know, I said at the beginning of this, God's calling me into ministry may have been more about him changing my heart towards the church. You know, so he puts me in this First Baptist Church in Lubbock, which this church was over 100 years old. And I remember my first visit there, I walk in Sunday morning, the early service is going on, and there's this organ like blaring loud. And I literally thought in my mind, oh, heck no, I'm not coming here. (laughs) Now, the rest of the church was totally different than that. But I'm in this legacy church out there. And then, fast forward a few years, I get a call from First Baptist Church, Denton. And fast forward, you know, a few months and all that stuff, I end up coming to another legacy church, which... You know, if you've been here on Sunday mornings, you know, you know this church is pretty vibey. It's, it's, it's actually a pretty sweet church. It's not, you know, people think First Baptist Church, oh, you know, big choir and, you know, pastor says God when he's <laughs> talking about God. That's not our church at all. But I'm saying all this to show you that throughout the past eight years, God has totally changed my heart towards the church. He's totally changed my heart towards the church. And I, and I hope you see that. You know, those of you who are really pl- plugged into this ministry, I hope you see that. Like, in the way that this ministry is structured, Tuesday night is not the main thing in this ministry at all. And we so desperately need the church. 
I, I, I need the church so bad for my own growth. You need the church so bad for your own growth. And the world needs the local church so that they can know that there's hope in Jesus. Now, all that being said, it still leaves the question. What, I mean, what is the church really? Like, what is the church supposed to be? What is the church supposed to look like? What is the church supposed to do? And in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, verse 19, listen to what Paul says. He says, nevertheless, in church. So he identifies the setting that we're talking about here. He says, nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue or speaking in tongues. Now he says this word church. The word church that you see in scripture is the Greek word ekklesia. And the first time we ever see this word ekklesia, Jesus is the one using it. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, where he's talking to Peter and he says, he's talking to the disciples, he said, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you're Jesus, the son of God, the savior of the world. And then that's when Jesus says to Peter, on this rock I will build my what? My church. In other words, on this confession of yours, Peter, the confession that Jesus Christ is the son of God, the savior of the world, that confession is the foundation of the church. That's the first time we see the word ecclesia. But what's interesting about this word choice, ecclesia, is that ecclesia was not really a religious term. Ecclesia was a term that could refer to any gathering of people around a specific purpose. So it was used sometimes like in civic terms, civil terms, like a gathering of citizens around a civil purpose or a civic purpose. A gathering of soldiers around a military purpose. Ecclesia was simply a gathering of people called out for a specific purpose. They were united by a common identity and, and purpose. That's the word that you see translated as church. But it's actually quite interesting where we get the word church. The word church comes from a German word, kirch, which came from a, a, a Germanic, pre-German word, that sounded like kirch. And the word kirch came from a Roman word, basilica. And the Roman word basilica came into play when the Roman elite, like, you know, upper rich wealthy class started building these specific locations for people to come, for Christians to come and worship. And the Roman elite class started building these specific locations for Christians to come worship after Constantine came into power in the Roman Empire. That's significant because prior to this, AD 313-ish, prior to this, Christianity was severely persecuted. It was severely persecuted, and because of that, uh, it was hard for believers to gather. In fact, their, their gatherings together were very few and far between, and when they gathered, they gathered in homes. They didn't have specific locations, specific buildings set aside for their gathering, so they gathered very informally. And, and when they gathered, because of the circumstances, because it was so secretive, because it was so rebellious, because there was so much persecution, there was no room in the gathering, the ecclesia, there was no room for people to come and, and simply just be spectators. Like you were either fully involved participating or you weren't involved, in all, involved at all because you were not a believer. You, know, you were not a Christian. So we're kind of, Working backwards here, Kirch, Basilica, Basilica from these Roman buildings that were built after Constantine comes into play and legalizes Christianity. And when he legalizes Christianity, declares himself a Christian, what happens is 
Christianity kind of becomes fashionable. And because it becomes fashionable, now the ruling class gets into play and, and now it becomes kind of a hierarchical, formal gathering thing built around these, or, or gathering in these locations, and it becomes more about the location than the gathering. And when that happens, it allows room for people to just come and spectate. You know, when the church is being persecuted, there is no such thing as a spectator in the church. Why in the world would you come to church if you were going to risk your life if you didn't believe it and want to participate? Are you following what I'm saying? You know, just came back last month from South Asia, going in May uh, again to South Asia, and just seeing the persecution there. These people don't gather over there just to come and spectate. You don't do that. There's no room for that. They gather there to participate. And their gatherings are way less formal than our gatherings here. But the point is the word church that we get, which comes from kirch, isn't really a translation of the word ecclesia. It's more of a substitution for it. And it's not really a good one either. Because the word kirch and the word ecclesia refer to two very different ideas. The word kirch refers to a moment or a meeting that's really centered around a location. And the word ecclesia really refers to a specific gathering of people centered around a specific purpose also refers to a movement of people. So one is a meeting, one is a movement. Church was never meant to be centered around one meeting during the week, but constantly moving and spreading and changing the culture and world around it. Now the moment that we lose sight of that, that's the moment that we lose sight of God's heart and God's mission. And think about all the inwardly focused arguments and discussions and conversations that we have in the church. Like, should we have a full band up here, or, or do we just like Jay Wooden Wag on their guitars? I mean, should we, should we have, like, you know, moving lights in here, just vibey candles? Should the carpet be green, or should we rip it up and, like, build a, you know, cool stage that's, like, black, and, you know, we can just looks more theater-ish, you know? Or what should we wear to church, or how, you know, how late should church be, how early should church be? Or conversations like the one we had last week, speaking in tongues prophecy. What role does that have in the church? I mean, these aren't bad things to talk about, but if they become the main thing, then we are ceasing to be the ecclesia and we are settling to be the church. And the church is and never was supposed to just be a moment during the week, but a movement dedicated to changing the world. Now go back to the simple definition of ecclesia. So ecclesia was simply a gathering of people called out for a specific purpose. In our case, ecclesia is a gathering of people specifically called out um, or rallied around a specific person. So this is a movement centered around Jesus. In other words, the primary reason that we exist as the church or ecclesia, whatever you want to call it now, is to help the world see in the clearest possible way who Jesus is and why the world needs Jesus. And there's a lot of things that can get in the way of that movement. There's a lot of things that can get in the way of that message being so clear. And so it should be our desire to guard our lives and to guard our gatherings from anything that distorts or dilutes or diminishes that message and that focus. And that's the heart of what Paul says in verse 19. 
He says, nevertheless, in the church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. This gathering is about Jesus. He is the one who brought us into this gathering. He's the one who sends us out from this gathering. Anything that gets in the way of that being clear simply does not belong. Anything that pulls us away from that being the focus, it's not from God. Now the danger, so we've been doing, this is week six of potatoes, tongues, tambourines, talking about the spiritual gifts, the Holy Spirit, specifically in light of the mysterious gifts of prophecy and speaking in tongues. You know, the danger of talking about prophecy and tongues for such a long period of time is that we get so focused on that and we lose sight of the bigger reason that we're here. We lose sight of the bigger reason that we're gathered. We lose sight of the, of the bigger thing that Paul's trying to say. It reminds me of what Peter writes in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 9. He says, for whoever lacks these qualities, which he's saying this really in regards to some other stuff, but he says, for whoever lacks these qualities is nearsighted, is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. You know, sometimes we can become so focused on the wrong thing that we lose sight of the right thing. It's kind of like if you were to take a piece of paper and you're, you know, you're reading it out here, the closer you bring it to your face, the less you're able to see around you. And, and if I was just kind of hold it right here for a long time, if y'all were really quiet, I, I might, if my memory's bad, I might forget that y'all are even here, here, you know? Like I might forget that I'm standing in front of a few hundred people in the middle of a worship center. I might just think I'm staring at a page with some notes scribbled on it. Over time, I can lose sight of that. And what we've been doing over the past few weeks is we've been taking Scripture and we've been examining it really closely. And we've been seeing, uh, learning about who the Holy Spirit and learning about who the Holy Spirit is, what he does, and, and, and the gifts that he gives us. We've been talking about speaking tongues and prophecy. We're holding this really up close to our face. Follow my train of thought here? And that's good. Like, it's important to do that because there's times we need to take a very close examination of things. But again, the risk in doing that is we get it so close to our face that we blind ourselves from the bigger picture. And that's why Paul says what he does in verse 20. He says, brothers, don't be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. He says we need to be mature in our thinking. Uh, any of you played Little League T-ball? Not now, like past tense. Okay, so I played Little League T-ball. Um, and, and there's really only two positions in Little, t, Little League T-ball that matter at all. Pitcher and first base. Everybody else, those are the kids who like, they can't control their arms and their legs yet. Uh, and, and outfield is like for the really terrible kids, right? What are the kids in the outfield doing? They're doing one of two things. They're not playing baseball. They're doing one of two things. They're sitting there picking flowers or they're chasing butterflies or bugs or whatever else flies past their face. Some of you are like, that was me. That was me right there. <laughs> Paul's saying, don't be so easily distracted like a little child. We need to be mature in how we think through what our time together should look like. And we need to do so not forgetting the whole reason for which we gather. Jesus is the one who brings us into this gathering, and he's the one who sends us out for this gathering. Our gathering is centered around, focused around him. And that lays the framework for what he says next. So look at verse 21. He says, in the law, it's written. In other words, in the law, capital L, he's saying in the Old Testament, essentially. I mean, really, specifically, he's talking about, um, uh, normally, normally it's talking about Genesis um, through Deuteronomy. But a lot of times it's also talking about just the Old Testament in general. And that's 
the case here because this is, he's going to quote Isaiah. So he says, in the law it's written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they won't listen to me, says the Lord. Now I want to pause for a minute before reading the rest of this. If God wanted to, he can make every single person in this room speak in tongues. If you don't know what that is, listen to last week on the podcast. But he can make everybody in this room speak in tongues if he wanted to. He could, he could allow there to be so many different signs and wonders if he wanted to. And so often that's exactly what we ask for. That's exactly what we want. But in quoting this from Isaiah, here's what Paul's trying to show us. What he's showing us is though that's what we often, often ask for and what we want, he's trying to show us that that's not what we really need. What he wants us to see is we need something much greater than that. We need a new heart. He's saying we need total transformation. We don't need a show. We need God to speak. We don't need a sign. We need to look at the sign that God's already given us. I heard heard John Piper say, he said, if you want to hear God speak, and this is John Piper who, who he believes in that speaking in tongues and prophecy still exists today. But he says, if you want to hear God speak, read the Bible out loud. And he says that because God has already spoken. Yeah, he could, he could bring this crazy wave of people speaking in tongues all over this room or prophecy all over this room. But the reality is if you want to hear God speak, just read the Bible out loud because he's already spoken. If you want to see a sign, then look at the resurrection of Jesus. God has given us that sign. You know, we want signs and we want wonders, but the reality is, I believe, even if God were to give us those signs and wonders, because of how messed up I know my heart is, and because of how messed up our hearts collectively are, many of us still wouldn't hear them. Many of us still wouldn't see them. Many of us still would not recognize them. How do I know that to be true? Because he's already done exactly that, the signs and wonders, yet we're still sitting here waiting for him to do something he's already done. So he says in verse 21, in the law it's written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people and even they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, verse 22, tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers but for believers. If therefore... The whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter. Will they not say that you're out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. The big idea of what Paul's saying here is speaking in tongues needs to be used with a lot of wisdom because it is, it is not the most edifying gift of the spiritual gifts. In fact, it has very specific use, very specific purpose. And he goes on to say in this, prophecy is way more edifying than speaking in tongues. Now, as I'm reading those verses this week, and I'm studying them, I'm thinking about them, verses 24 and 25 caught my attention. And I want, I want, I want to explain to you what I'm, I'm seeing as I see this. So, so read 24, 25. He says, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever outsider enters, he's convicted by all. 
He's called to account by all. Verse 25, the secrets of his heart are disclosed. Stop there. Are you sure that you want God to enable us to prophesy? I mean, I'm sitting there reading that thinking, you know, we, we say we want signs and wonders, but do we really? Like, do we really want the secrets of our hearts disclosed? I mean, I just want you to sit there and think for a minute. What if God suddenly enabled the gift of prophecy in this room and somebody stands up and he allows them to see your heart? Would you want the sign and the wonder in that moment? Do we really want that? As I was reading through different stuff, I came across this story from, from, from Charles Spurgeon. You don't forget that story. We don't need to go there. Let's just, I mean, hit, hit that question. Do we really want, I mean, that's what I'm thinking. As I'm reading this, I'm thinking, man, I don't know. Are you following my train of thought here? I mean, that was convicting what Jay Wood and Wag just did. Hold our hands out, and he starts listing that stuff. What have your hands touched this week? What have your hands clicked on this week? I mean, it would be very interesting to know the amount of hours viewed of pornography just from people in this room today. He talked about what have your hands done in the classroom this week? Man. Or if you have an online class, what have your hands done on Blackboard this week? Or not done on Blackboard this week? <laughs> Do we really want prophecy? Do we really want the secrets of our hearts disclosed? But then I started thinking about something else. You notice he says, verse 24. He says, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, let's stop there. He's talking about how prophecy is for the outsider, it's for the unbeliever. I mean, why would God enable us to prophesy if we're not bringing the outsider and the unbeliever? If prophecy is for the outsider, if prophecy is for the unbeliever, why would he allow us to prophesy if we're not, if we're not being intentional about bringing, inviting the outsider and the unbeliever? I don't know what that does to your heart. That can fix my heart. But then I started thinking about this too. You know, I don't know if you noticed, <clears throat> I mean, in chapter 14, over and over, he talks about the outsider and the unbeliever. And there's been so many, this is one of those conversations in the church, inward focus. There's been so many conversations in the church about should we be attractional in our model or missional in our model? Should we say to people, come see us, or should we go see them? I mean, literally, there's been conversations and conversations, and it's a really good conversation to have, but... There's also been a lot of finger pointing and name calling and all this stuff, and there's been a bad rap for the attractional model. But Peter, Peter, Paul, obviously, to at least some extent, had an attractional model in mind because he's talking about the ecclesia here. He's talking about the church. He's made that clear. He's talking about the gathering around Jesus, 
Yet in those same sentences, he's saying over and over, we need to consider the outsider and the unbeliever who's going to be there with us. Which really speaks to some big stuff. Like it's absolutely imperative that that is how we think. I mean, we don't dilute the message for the unbeliever. We don't dilute what we're reading in Scripture. But we need to understand that there, at least to some extent, is the, hey, come and see this Jesus that I know. And come meet these people who've been changed by Jesus that I know. And and in this moment, my role is to make sure that I am as clearly as possible communicating the, the word of God. You know, the band's role, their role is to, as, as clearly as possible, as best as possible, help lead us to worship God. But more than anything else, it's not about the style of teaching that happens here or the style of music that happens here that makes this attractional or not. It's about you. How do you conduct yourself? Who are you interacting with here? How do you interact with others here? I mean, last week after, after Overflow, you know, we encouraged people to tweet using the hashtag Overflow Denton, and I saw somebody post something to the effect of, I, I, it said, everyone is so welcoming here, exclamation point, exclamation point. I love it, exclamation point, exclamation point. But they said, everyone is so welcoming here. I love it. Did they say that because of you? Do people wa- walk away from here thinking that because of you? Or do people walk away thinking differently because of you? Acts 15, 19 says, it's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. In other words, we shouldn't make it difficult for unbelievers to turn to God. We should be inviting and bringing unbelievers and outsiders to our gathering. Are you doing that? Knowing that outsiders and unbelievers are here each week, we should do whatever we can to make sure that we're making it easy as possible for them to see Jesus clearly. Are you doing your part in that? So he says, verse 26, what then, brothers? So now he gets to the point where he's like, okay, so we've been talking about prophecy in tongues. What now? He says, all right, so now he's honing it in. What should our worship gatherings look like as a result? Based on what he's already said and just what we've seen tonight, there's two very clear things. One, we need to remain focused on why we exist. We're not simply a location or a meeting. We're a movement centered around Jesus. But two, we need to remember that We are a movement centered around Jesus with the goal of helping the unbeliever and outsider see Jesus as clearly as possible. If we lose sight of those two things, then we lose sight of the whole reason we exist. But he says, verse 26, what then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let things be done for building up. So he says, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or interpretation. Everyone has their idea. Here's what he's saying. Everyone has their idea for how things should look and the way things should be done and what things should be done and when those things during this time should happen. I'm sure in this room, you know, you, 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 you put together a few hundred people, like there's gonna be a lot of different ideas. And that's, that's, that's because we're creative people. I'm not saying this, I'm not you know, knocking this, saying it's bad, like it's good. There's a lot of different ideas. There's a lot of gifts brought in this room. When you gather on a Sunday morning, if you come to a life group here, you know, you're with 20 other people. 20 other people, there's gonna be a lot of creativity in that 20 people. Unless you just hit a bad patch, then there won't be much creativity. But most of the time, there's gonna be a lot of creativity. There's gonna be a lot of gifts. 
So a lot of things that people can bring to the table. In your community, you know, 8, 10, 12 people, there's going to be a lot of creativity, a lot of gifts. But look at what he says next. I mean, knowing that we all bring stuff to the table, look at what he says next. He says, let all things be done for building up. That word, let, it, it carries with it this idea of, or this level of submission. I mean, you feeling that in there? Like, let it happen? It carries with it this level of submission, this level of surrender, this level of humility. I mean, for you to let something happen is basically for you to submit your wants and your goals and, and your ambitions to the greater mission of God. You know, for you to let all things happen for the building up that Paul t- talks about, it's for you to surrender your, your wants, your goals, your desires, your ambitions, your dreams to the mission of God. It's for you to say in humility that the mission of God is more important than what you have set for yourself. So he's saying, let it happen. And that word, it's an imperative singular verb, imperative. You know what that means? Nobody's a grammar student in here. It's a command. Imperative is a command. So he's saying, do this. But here's what I find really interesting. It's singular. I mean, he's talking to a bunch of people here. He's talking to the church at Corinth. Why didn't he say, y'all let this happen? Why didn't he do that? You know, I I had to stop and think about this for a while because I thought maybe he's talking to the leaders of the church. But even then it would be plural. It's very clear what he's doing. He's saying, look, this is one gathering around one purpose, around one person. And so we together as one unified body need to let this happen. He's commanding us to come together as one in submission, in surrender, in humility to whatever God's mission has for us. And he says, let all things be done for building up. Uh, the, the verse, Ephesians 4, 11 through 12, uses the same term, building up. It says, and he, God, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up, there it is, for building up the body of Christ, until we all maintain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. If you read on, you see Christ again, and then you see Christ again. The whole emphasis in that passage is Christ. And and he's saying, just like he is in 1 Corinthians 14 and Ephesians 4, he's saying we are to be built up into Christ. So let all things in submission, in surrender, in humility, let all things happen so that we can be built up into Christ. Let all things happen centered not around you and your desires, your goals, your ambitions, but around Jesus. It is so hard, it is so hard when we have an idea or so hard when we have an ability and God says, hey, right now, I don't want you to use that. Because we want to be like, no, I want to use it. It's a good idea. Or I'm really good at this. And he says, no, right now, I don't want you to use that. And so for you in that moment to let all things happen for the building up of the church and to Christ, you have to, in submission and surrender and humility, say that his way, his mission 
is more important than mine. So the first thing that Paul says in specific regard to what our gatherings should look like is everything in our worship gathering should point to Jesus. And then he says, verses 27 through 33, he says, if any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three and each in turn and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. So we're seeing there's an importance here of, okay, if there is speaking in tongues in the public worship gathering, there has to be interpretation. But then he says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. Verse 30, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Here's the big picture of what Paul's saying. He's saying order is good and order is necessary in our worship gatherings. Now, again, we have to understand this in the bigger context. Our, our tendency here is to rip this out of context, and a lot of people do this. They read this, one little section here, they rip it out of context, because this is what Paul's been talking about now for a few paragraphs, and, and they see, okay, as he's talking about what should happen in our worship gathering, all he mentions is speaking in tongues and prophecy. And if you rip it out of the greater context of, okay, the Corinthians had made it a huge deal, therefore Paul is answering it in a huge way, if you rip it out of that context, then all you see is Paul saying, this is the worship gathering. This is the main thing. But when you see Paul's ministry, and you see everything else that Paul says, and you see the context in which this falls, you see that it's, it's not just prophecy in tongues, if those things happen at all in that gathering. Going back to what we said earlier. And so we can lose sight of that, but he's saying order is good. In the broad picture, anything that happens in here Order is good. Order is necessary for our worship gatherings. Now, that doesn't mean that we, that we quench the Holy Spirit and what he wants to do in this time. Um, at the, or, we, or it doesn't mean we stick to our plan at the expense of the Holy Spirit and what he wants to do in our time. Follow my train of thought? I kind of messed that up the first time. It doesn't mean that we follow our, our plan, our order, what we have on this page every week, this is our set list, songs, when I come up, all that good stuff, and we already actually changed it even before the night started, so there you go. Um, but it doesn't mean we follow that at the expense of the Holy Spirit. And, and there's weeks, it's happened this week, not just what I told you about there, but already in this setting, we've changed what we planned. And there's weeks where that happens. I remember actually almost this time last year, in the middle of a sermon I'm teaching, and, and God, you know, not audibly, but in my heart, he, he, he made it very clear. At the end of this, you need to call people forward to receive Christ and be baptized. And that's scary when you don't have anybody scheduled because if you do it and then nobody comes forward, it's like, mm, that was a little awkward, <laughs> you know? But we had 16 people come forward that night. 16, and it lasted way longer than our goal of 930. You know, so we don't stick to our plan at the expense of the Holy Spirit, but what he is saying is order is good and order is necessary in our worship gatherings, especially when you're talking about a room full of 300, 400 people. I mean, likely their gatherings weren't anything like this size-wise. So it even emphasizes it more. So then he goes on, verses 33, let's see, did I get him? Yeah, 33 through uh, 35. It says, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church now. I don't want you to be mad at me for doing this. But this is, this is a, another one of the 
topics that takes time to discuss and talk about. And we have done that before in here. Um, we did it, I believe it was 2012, we were studying through First Timothy in the spring. And it was in our First Timothy series. If you go back to our podcast, you have to go to our website, overflowden.com for this. It's not still on iTunes. And it's, only, it's not video, it's only list, you can only listen to it. But it's First Timothy number seven, and it's titled, To the Women. We had one the week before, To the Men. So, To the Women, First Timothy number seven. We spent about an hour discussing this. And the reason I'm not going to go there tonight is because if I deal with it briefly, there's going to be pieces that are extremely important that are going to be missed. And so I want to encourage you, if you read that and you're like, whoa, whoa, what the heck? You know, I, I want you to go listen to the podcast, First Timothy number 7, titled To the Women. So then he goes on, verse 36, and he says, well, was it from you that the word of God came? A little sarcasm there. My boy, Paul. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones that has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Do you realize? Paul says what he was writing in that moment is a command from the Lord. 2 Timothy 3.16 talks about how all of God's word, all of the Bible, all of scripture is God-breathed. It's inspired by God. These are God's words. That's why John Piper said, if you want to hear God speak, read the Bible out loud. And so the point that Paul's making here is our worship gatherings should be saturated in God's word. So he said, what all has he said here? (laughs) I'm losing my train of thought. So he said, everything in our worship gathering should point to Christ. He said, order is good and order is necessary in our worship gatherings. And then he said, our worship gatherings should be saturated in God's word. So six weeks studying 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14, talking about the Holy Spirit, talking about spiritual gifts, talking about these crazy two gifts that are still even difficult to understand, speaking in tongues and prophecy. Where do we land in all of this? And I want you to see what he says in verse 39 and 40. He says, so my brothers, that's a generic term for the church, brothers and sisters in Christ. So my brothers and sisters in Christ earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. You know, you go back to that very first week and we kind of talked about the stereotypes of the two different, you know, churches. One, it's more like a funeral. The other one's like a circus is kind of what we said. He's addressing that right here. You know, we've heard him say now in First Thessalonians, do not despise prophecy. And now he says, do not forbid speaking in tongues. And the first thing he's saying is, don't outlaw this stuff. He's saying, don't outlaw it. Don't lean too hard that way. And there's a lot of churches that do that. They lean too hard that direction. He says, don't outlaw it. But, he says, he says, but all things should be done decently and in order. When he says that decently and in order, what he's saying is also don't lean too hard the other way. Don't let those mysterious gifts that all throughout church history the church has struggled with becoming too focused on, don't let those gifts become the focus. Because remember, we exist around one purpose, around one person, and that's Jesus. So if you don't hear anything else that I say, I, I, if, if you don't walk away from this without anything else, I want you to walk away with discernment. Five signs, five signs. 
Five signs to look for in a person or in a church and in yourself. Are you growing into a greater esteem for Jesus? Are you growing into a greater regard for Scripture, which is God's Word? Are you growing in conviction of your own personal sin that leads you into repentance? Are you growing in your commitment to God's mission? And are you growing in your love for God's church, God's people, your brothers and sisters in Christ? I hope this is a study that's been very informative, and I hope it's been a study that has also been very transformative in your life. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the Overflow Podcast. Please feel free to download and share with friends. We ask that you do not alter any of the previous content in any way. For more information about Overflow, feel free to visit us online at overflowdenton.org.